Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. So, I attended a salsa class this week, and uh, the instructor said, all right, folks, it's time to learn how to dance, and I realized there was a serious misunderstanding. I took my chips and went home. <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein entered a bodybuilding competition. It wasn't long before he figured there had been a misunderstanding. <laughs> See? <laughs> so I was unsure which mattress I should buy, and the salesman told me to sleep on it. Apparently, there was another misunderstanding, uh, and they asked me to leave the store. Misunderstandings, right? Uh, they happen in life, and that's what Jesus is going to deal with today. He's going to deal with misunderstanding and misapplication of the scriptures on the part of the religious authorities. Let's read the passage, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, we turn to you, the God of the Word, and we ask that you would bless this study, Father, that beyond the words of a man, um, that your Spirit would speak, Lord, to the souls here, to the hearts here that are tuned into you. I do pray, Father, uh, against distractions, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to hear the Word clearly that you would help us to understand the scriptures. Lord, make the book live to us, make it plain. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Jesus' day, the religious rulers were called the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, the scribes, also called lawyers, were masters of the Old Testament scriptures. What they did was they interpreted the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, they interpreted the scriptures, and they taught people, they, well, they told people how to apply them. The Pharisees were a zealous sect of extremely legalistic Jews. Their name, in fact, means, does anybody know? The separated ones. That's what Pharisee means, the separated ones. They believed that heaven was earned by a rigid observance of all the 613 commandments that they took out of the Old Testament. On top of that, the hundreds of writings that their teachers came up with as well. They thought that heaven was earned by a rigid observance of these, um, uh, you know, of these uh, rules and regulations. And they also created their own traditions, and they elevated those traditions to the level of Scripture. Now, the people would come into the synagogue in this day, like if you were a worshiper, you would come into the synagogue, which is like a church. Uh, it's the Jewish, you know, gathering on Saturday. They'd come into the synagogue, and the people would learn from these groups, the scribes and the Pharisees. The people, their part was simply to obey what the scribes and Pharisees said and uh, just to comply with it and not to question them. Now, these scribes and Pharisees were like the spiritual giants of the day. They were highly esteemed. They were materially wealthy. 
uh, and they were powerful among men, and they enjoyed their position. The problem is they were incredibly harsh and flat-out wrong in their interpretation of the Bible. Now, they were incorrect in how they taught soteriology, in other words, in how somebody is saved. They were incorrect. They were completely wrong in enforcing their traditions as the commands of God. The Bible says that they laid heavy burdens on people, and they weren't even able to bear these burdens themselves. Now, what is interesting is that their overly harsh interpretations of the Scriptures and the way that they taught to be saved actually relaxed the standard that God puts forth in His Word. Now, you might be saying, how in the world did the Pharisees and the scribes relax the standard that God set forth in his word? I thought they put this other crazy standard that nobody could meet. How did they, how did they actually relax it? Well, they interpreted and taught the commands of scriptures, asserting that they could be kept perfectly, right? They taught that these 613 commandments and all these traditions of the rabbis, that they could be kept, Right? that you could essentially earn your way to heaven. Now, let me give an example of this. The Ten Commandments. Uh, who knows the first commandment? Shout them out. Have no other gods before me. Okay, great. So I, I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a pantheist. I don't worship the gods of the Canaanites, the Egyptians. Great. Check. Did that. Okay, what's the second one? Anybody? No graven images. There we go. Uh, so perfect. I don't have any statues or any idols in my house. Third commandment. Anybody know? Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Great. I don't even say the name. The Jews didn't even say the name. They just say the name, right? So they're doing pretty well so far, 100%, right? Number four, uh, Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day. They were crazy about that. Thousands of, literally thousands of laws of what it meant to work on the Sabbath and what it didn't. So had that one nailed. Uh, honor father and mother. Uh, they had some weird ways of obeying that. Um, six, no murder. Great. Never killed anyone. Seven, no adultery. Awesome. Never cheated on my wife. Uh, don't steal. Great. Check. Check mark. Never stolen a thing. Don't bear false witness. Never done such a thing. Awesome. I'm perfect. I'm blameless. Until they get to number 10. Number 10 says don't covet. Okay. But what I'm showing you is the way the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted scriptures, they said, these are things that can be obeyed. And this whole not covet one, we'll talk about that in a second. On the outside, externally, I mean, it is possible for someone to appear as though they've kept all these commandments and, you know, that's how they taught the law. Keep the law, go to heaven. They asserted, you know, essentially that God grades on a curve. If you keep 10 commandments, you go to heaven, you're pretty righteous, God loves you, you're righteous. If you keep nine of them, you're not quite as righteous. God doesn't love you quite as much. You're, you're, quite not, you're not as quite right with God. Now, if you keep four of the commandments, oh man, you're really not right with God. See, so this is how they viewed God in heaven is on this grading scale based on how well you do. Kind of like a test in school, right? If you get a certain percentage, you pass. If you don't, you don't pass. And that's how they looked at the Old Testament law. Now, back to my statement that they actually relaxed the commandments of God. Okay, Paul the Apostle, later on, you remember Paul was a what? What was he? Was he a Pharisee? Exactly. Paul was a Pharisee. And in Philippians, he said that he was blameless. He says, according to the law, a Pharisee, blameless. So the apostle Paul believed that he kept 
all the 613 commandments and all the traditions of the rabbis, he believed that he kept them all blamelessly. But it's pretty interesting when you read, that's an amazing statement, by the way. Paul must have been like a righteous dude, right? But it's interesting when you read in Romans, the seventh chapter. You guys remember what I'm talking about here? You you know where I'm going with this? In Romans chapter 7, he said that when he read and understood, thou shalt not covet, he realized something about the law that he didn't understand before. That the commandments, the law, isn't just about externals. It actually deals with the heart, because coveting has to do within the heart. I can't see if you covet or not. I can see if you've killed somebody or not. You know, I mean, I could see if you're lying. This is an external sort of thing. But I can't see if you're jealous over other people's stuff and if you desperately want what your neighbor has. I can't see that. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. He says, finally, he came to the point in his life after understanding Christ and after understanding the gospel, he said that the law is spiritual. And he says, but I'm carnal. And he says, when I understood that the command is spiritual, he says, I died. Remember that in Romans 7? What he means by that is he thought before that he was blameless. Paul, do you keep the commandments? Yes, every single one of them. Well, when Jesus said, hey, the law actually has to do with the internal attitudes of the heart, not just the outward behavior, then Paul was like, oh, now I'm dead. Now the law condemns me to death, right? Because if you break God's law, what? The wages of sin is what? Right. So now Paul gets it. He used to be this Pharisee, all proud. He was subscribed to the way they taught the Bible and said, I can keep all these commandments. In fact, I've done it myself my whole life. Well, Jesus says to him, hey, uh, the law is spiritual, dealing with the heart. Oh, okay, I'm undone. Paul says, I died. Paul came to the point in his life where he understand that God's standard is 100% unattainable by humans. Do you understand that too? God's standard is absolutely unattainable by humans. You can never live up to God's standard. No human can ever. Now, back to my comment about the scribes and Pharisees and the way they actually relaxed the standards of God. Do you see how they did that? Because they taught that the law could be kept. Because on the outside, you can kind of make it look like you keep it. But actually, the law has a higher standard even yet because it deals with the attitudes of your heart. And the truth is, is no person could ever keep it. No person. So the Pharisees and scribes, as legalistic and religious as they seem, they actually watered down the commands of God in their interpretations of it. Is everybody tracking along here? Because this is important to understand what Jesus says in this passage here today. Okay, that's good. So in our message today, uh, now the relationship of the scribes and Pharisees to Jesus. So they were threatened by him. They were jealous of the following he was attracting. They were afraid of losing their position in society. So what they did was they branded Jesus as a heretic, right? They pitted him against Moses, the author of the law in the Old Testament, all the time. And they made it seem to the people that Jesus was at odds with the Bible, right? And they were doing that to make him seem like a heretic. Now, they did it to get rid of him, right? Now, make no mistake about it. Jesus had blatant disregard for the traditions of men, right? But he never broke any of the commandments of God. He breaks their Sabbath traditions all the time. And as you read the Gospels, you see, why are they hassling Jesus about the Sabbath so much? It's because Jesus is breaking their traditions. He's not breaking the Old Testament command. God said, don't work on the Sabbath. 
The Pharisees said, here's a thousand things that dictate what work is. Like you can't put your dentures in on the Sabbath because you're bearing a burden, right? You can't work on the Sabbath, so you can't put your dentures in. Uh, you can bandage up a wound, but you can't put ointment on it, right? Crazy rules, right? Tedious, thousands of them. Now, so what the scribes and Pharisees did with Jesus is they wanted to make him seem like a heretic, like he had a very low view of the scriptures, right? So in the message today, Jesus says, you know, actually, I haven't relaxed the commands of the Old Testament at all, and believers should never do that either. And in fact, if you really want to get into heaven, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And I will tell you that when he said that, that was a jaw dropper to them. You're telling me I need to be holier than the Pope? You're telling me I need to be better than the Pope? Yep, that's what I'm saying. Better than Billy Graham? I have to have a righteousness that's higher than Billy Graham? Yeah, you have to have a righteousness that's higher than any human. That's what he's saying in this passage here today. Now, the rest, so they misinterpreted scriptures in a way that they said, you know, they could be fulfilled by man. Paul said, I'm blameless, right? Jesus says, no, that's not true. In this passage, you've misinterpreted scriptures. I value the scriptures. And then the rest of chapter 5, look at it there. Uh, verse 21 to... Uh, 26, he deals with, the rest of the chapter, he deals with five issues that they misinterpreted the scriptures on, right? Um, murder, adultery, uh, marriage, oaths, um, you know, so on and so forth. The rest of the chapter of uh, chapter five illustrates the Pharisees' incorrect teaching of the scriptures, and then Jesus gives the correct one. You know how that goes. You've heard it said, but I say to you. What Jesus is doing is bringing the true interpretation of the scriptures. Now, I mean, yeah, okay, let's just go on. <laughs> Here's the outline for today. It's very simple. Three parts. Number one, Jesus' relationship to the scriptures. Number two, believers' relationship to uh, the scriptures. Uh, number three, the righteousness that God demands, right? So you get the gist of it. Jesus is saying, I haven't devalued the Old Testament at all, and believers shouldn't do that. And in fact, you guys are the one that's, that's misinterpreting it. And actually, here's the standard that God uh, requires, which is way higher than your legalistic interpretation of the Scriptures. Number one, Jesus' relationship to the Scriptures. Don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Now, does that make sense to you why he's saying that? Because they were saying, Jesus has come to just destroy the law and the prophets, to throw the Bible out. But Jesus says, don't think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Now, when he was disregarding the tr traditions of the scribes and Pharisees, he's not throwing out the Bible. But what Jesus is doing is he's, he brought the correct interpretation of the Bible. Some Christians have the misunderstanding today. They say, well, I'm under grace. I'm not under law, right? And so I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say this. Well, you, you try to talk to them about sin in their life and how they're breaking God's commandments. And they say, I'm under grace. I'm not under law. I don't really care. That's a misunderstanding of the Scriptures. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to throw the Old Testament out. That's, that's not what, I, what I'm saying. I'm not saying, here, do something different, and now the whole Old Testament doesn't make any sense anymore. Just get rid of it. He's saying this. Look, verse 17. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. I didn't, I didn't come to destroy the Scriptures. I came to fulfill the Scriptures. Everything the Old Testament said, Jesus came to fulfill it. Um, Jesus came and lived the scriptures correctly. He interpreted the word correctly. 
He came to fulfill the true meaning of the whole Old Testament. I don't know if you know that when you read the Old Testament. You think it's, well, there's this story about this Abraham guy. And here's this Jacob dude. And here's, but, but we don't understand sometimes growing up in Sunday schools, you know, sometimes we don't get the, the big picture that it's all about Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all uh, the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples. How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament law? First of all, the moral law. You know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Here's how Jesus fulfills that. Jesus never lied, cheated, or stole anything in his life, in his heart, or in any action. He was like us at all points, but without sin, the book of Hebrews says. So he came and he fulfilled the moral law, right? Another way Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, the ceremonial law, right? All these feasts in the Old Testament, let me just give you an example. Uh, Passover, who knows what the Jews did uh, why? what Passover is all about. You guys remember the story, right? You're in bondage in Egypt, and God's going to let you go, and he's going to spring them out of slavery in Egypt. And the last uh, of the 10 plagues, God says, you know, Pharaoh's going to let you go this time because I'm going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. Now, the one uh, stipulation I have is I'm not going to kill all the firstborn of any house that has the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorpost of the house. Now, Think about that for a second. The ones that have blood from a lamb on their doorpost are not going to die, right? Now, do you see how, skip ahead to Jesus Christ, that he is the fulfillment of the Passover? See that? Because by faith in Jesus, you know, they say by covered, you know, you're covered in the blood of Christ by faith in him, then the angel of death hops over you. You don't die. See, Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover. He says, I didn't come to destroy the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it in all points. Now, the sacrificial laws. If you've read the Old Testament, you go, man, this is a bloodbath. It's like a butcher house. It's like a slaughterhouse. They're, I mean, you know, from Exodus on, you know, they start the tabernacle up and they start, you know, Leviticus is just like a book of blood. I don't know how many times the word blood's in the book of Leviticus. Like, who remembers? It's like 88 times in the whole book, you know? So the Jews in, in you know, the Old Testament time, they had to bring animals to be sacrificed as a temporary covering for sin. Well, fast forward to the time of Christ. Now, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice once and for all for sins. If you've read the book of Hebrews, right, you understand how that all works together. Jesus didn't come to destroy the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it in all points. How did he fulfill the prophets? When he says, I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets, that's, he's just talking about the whole extent of the Old Testament. How did Jesus fulfill the prophets? Well, Jesus' birthplace, his mission, his crucifixion were all actually predicted in the Old Testament by prophets. And in his coming, uh, the place he was born, the way he died, the mission that he was on, who he spoke to, he fulfilled all the predictions in the Old Testament about the Messiah. So they were accusing him, Jesus, you're, just, you're, you're teaching some heresy and relaxing the commandments of God. He goes, no, I came actually to fulfill all of these things perfectly. <clears throat> I was going to list off a whole bunch of prophecies, but you can do your own research. Uh, type into Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever search engine you use and type into there um, prophecies fulfilled by Jesus in his coming. And you'll see that there's like probably a hundred and, you know, you, hundreds of them. You'll find, and it's a fascinating study, you know. Uh, don't, you don't need to do it now, but that's a good study. Prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his coming. And you'll see more about what he means when he says, I came to fulfill the scripture. 
Look what he says now in verse 18. He says, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, uh, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law uh, until all is fulfilled. Now, he says, Assuredly, I say to you. When Jesus says that numerous times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that's something, you know, where he says, Assuredly, I say to you. In other words, he's like, Listen and take note of what I'm about to say, right? Um, one jot or one tittle, right? What does that mean? Well, the jot refers to uh, what's called a yod, and it's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like a half of a letter. It looks like an apostrophe as far as we're concerned, if you're looking at Hebrew writing. And then a tittle is like a mark on a letter uh, that distinguishes it from one letter or another. A way to understand it in English is like, say you've got an uppercase P, right? And you can easily turn it into a what? An uppercase R. Wow, yeah. Um, and so that little line that you add, that's a tittle, right? Now, what Jesus is saying is fascinating here. He's saying, not only are the ideas of the Scripture inspired, even down to the smallest punctuation, down to the letters, Jesus says, none of this will pass away um, until all of it is fulfilled, right? It's kind of interesting, uh, as an aside here, you know, far from a heretic, Jesus actually had a view of Scripture that's what we would call inerrancy today. Jesus viewed the Bible as being the inerrant Word of God, even down to the punctuation uh, that's in it, you know? Not just the ideas of Scripture. Now, he says, will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Now, what you have to understand is the things that Jesus fulfilled in the law, Christians, you know, don't do those things anymore. For instance, we don't sacrifice animals anymore. Why? Yeah, because he fulfilled that. You know, we don't keep the Sabbath the same way the Jews did, right? Because it says in Colossians chapter 2 that all of those things, the Sabbath, the new moons, the feasts, the festivals, they were all a shadow of the things to come, which the substance is what? Christ, right? You know Colossians 2, it says in there that the Old Testament, all that stuff's been fulfilled in Christ. That's why Christians don't do it today. That's why when people say you have to worship on Saturday, they don't understand how Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath they don't understand the difference uh, between what Jews did and what Christians did. But the essence of the law, love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and all the moral law of the Old Testament, that stands forever. There is no fulfillment of the fact that honesty is right. Nobody ever fulfills that. It's just a constant law. And that's what Jesus means. None of this will pass away until everything is fulfilled. The, the, the nature of the law, the essence of the law is everlasting. Jesus didn't come to throw any of this stuff out. He came to fulfill it perfectly. Now, <clears throat> I want to talk about, just, just for a second, the view that Jesus has of the Scriptures. Again, I want to point out, not just the ideas. You know, some people today will say, I read the Bible, but I, just, I like the red letters in there. And it's like, well, Jesus' view was certainly not that. Jesus' view was Leviticus is the very word of God down to the punctuation, the book of Numbers that everybody loves so much, right? These, in Jesus' mind, were the infallible word of God that had to be approached with reverence and awe and wonder and diligence, right? That was Jesus' view of Scripture. And so I wanted to point that out today just so you... Think about what your view of Scripture is compared to what Jesus' view of Scripture is, right? 
Uh, people attack scriptures. It is being attacked today big time because the book Leviticus, for example, condemns certain types of lifestyles that people are lobbying for today. And so the Bible is being attacked. And Christians are caving under this pressure and saying, you know, why can't we just have a nice like New Testament Christianity? Maybe without the first chapter of Romans, we could throw that out. It won't condemn anybody's lifestyle. And we can all just get along. Well, Jesus had a view of Scripture that that wouldn't fit with his view of Scripture. So if, if that's your view today, that why don't we stay away from the controversial stuff because some of God's Word, you know, if you don't take it as a whole, as it's all God's Word, you're at odds with Jesus, right? And so a Christian should understand, and I believe a Christian should believe in the inerrancy of Scripture because Jesus did. And he said that it will all come to pass. Now, that's the doctrine of the infallibility of the Word of God. You know what that infallible means? You high schoolers should know that. Infallible, right? It means that it will not fail. See, this, the center word in it is fail, infallible. Jesus believed that the Scripture will not fail. If it says something's going to happen, it's going to happen, right? And so we need to have the same view of Scriptures as Jesus did as his people. What's your view of the Old Testament, right? Is it like Jesus? So his relationship to the Scriptures, he, you know, contrary to what they're saying about him, he was not relaxing the commandments uh, of the Scriptures. He came to fulfill them and keep them perfectly as God intended. And he's the only one that ever could, by the way. And that's what he came to do. Number two, believers' relationship to the Scriptures. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that verse 19 there is what they were saying about him. And when Jesus says this here, it's actually about them. <laughs> they were the ones that were relaxing it, and they were teaching people. that Actually, the Pharisees taught that it wasn't important if you broke some of the smaller, not as important commands of God, right? Um, that was what they were teaching. And so Jesus is saying, no, if, if you're relaxing the Scriptures and teaching men that it's okay to break certain commandments, you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. Not a salvation issue, right? Because where are they? They're in the kingdom of what? Heaven, right? It says it right there, least in the kingdom of heaven, right? So not a salvation issue, but those that esteem the word low, you know, have low esteem for the word here, are going to be not so esteemed in heaven, is what he's saying. Now, it's kind of interesting. We say, well, we might be kind of far disconnected from, uh, you know, these Pharisees and scribes thousands of years ago, but there have, you know, the popes and stuff have done the exact same thing. Uh, loosen certain commands of Scripture. Like if you read about what the Pope's doing today, the Pope essentially decides that, oh, the Bible's not against, you know, certain types of lifestyles, or the Bible teaches evolution, and, and the Pope just says that, and then all the Catholics are just like the people in this day, and they believe what the Pope says because they believe he's infallible. He's self-proclaimed infallible, and so he trumps Scripture. And he's doing exactly what they did then, and he's at fault just the same as they were then, right? Um, that's at odds with uh, what Jesus says. Anybody that breaks these commandments and teaches others to do so. Listen, if the Pope says that lifestyles are okay, that the Bible condemns, the Bible's right, the Pope's not right, right? So which side do you want to be on? You have to make a choice probably sometime in your life. Where he says, whoever breaks one of these uh, one of the least of these commandments. Now, first of all, we talked about this. This doesn't mean that if I'm not sacrificing animals that I'm breaking the commandments, right? Well, why? Because Jesus is the sacrifice. This means, you know, if I'm breaking um, 
you know, the, the moral law of God, if I'm breaking the, you know, if I'm failing to love the Lord my God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor is myself, I'm breaking these commandments. Now, if I go teach other people to do the same thing, I'll be least esteemed, um, you know, in heaven. And he goes on and he says, and teaches men so. That's a good point there. You know, you want to be really careful about how you teach the Bible to others. You know, you don't ever want to teach people that the Old Testament doesn't matter, you know, which I've heard people uh, do that. You just have to understand the place of the Old Testament. <clears throat> now, when he says, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about salvation here. We know that the Christian is done with the law as a means of salvation. Our righteousness does not come by obeying the law. Our righteousness comes by faith in Christ, right? And so he says, whoever does and teaches the commandments, he shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. You're not teaching the commandments to gain righteousness. I don't come here on Sunday and say, Corey, if you want to be saved, you need to keep the Ten Commandments. No, we do, keep, we do teach the commandments that God has uh, in the right context because that's the way that we are to live as Christians, right? And that's what he's getting at there. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I remember one time... <laughs> I was kind of getting some friendly persecution from a friend that was very liberal Christian. And he told me that I should just essentially, why don't you just teach the Sermon on the Mount? That's the only thing that's important. Just chuck the whole Old Testament, you know? And, and I was getting some persecution, right? Like some jesting about the whole thing. And I came to this passage and I was like, you know, the guy that, that teaches and does these things, he's going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And I was like, you know what? I don't care what this guy says because the Bible, Jesus says right here, uh, that this is important, and uh, I'll be great in the kingdom of heaven because of it. So, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it, right? And uh, no, he's a good friend. It's, it's an intellectual battle of the wits when we're together. It's a good time. <sighs> you have to understand this. Sometimes people confuse the grace of God, and they think that it means there's no place for the law in the Old Testament in their life. Um, Jesus says it's a good thing to do and to teach the commandments not as a way to earn salvation, but as a way to live. You know, I don't think that I keep the Ten Commandments to get saved. I look at the Ten Commandments and say, these are good. People don't lie. People don't cheat. People don't you know, cheat on each other. Imagine the world if people kept those things. They're great. That's what I want to be. This is what God expects of me, is for me to be like this as his child. Not a means of salvation, because if I'm honest, I couldn't do it. You know, I've lied, cheated, stolen. All those things. So I could never keep it as a system to get into heaven. But I can use it as a guidepost of how I live my life now. God certainly wants you to obey his word, but not as the scribes and Pharisees attempting to earn your way into heaven. As children that love God and desire to live according to his will. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to uphold his commandments because they're good. Not as a way to earn salvation. So contrary to what people are saying, Jesus has a very high view of scriptures. We've seen his relationship and the believer's relationship to the word. Now verse 20, the righteousness that God demands. The scribes and the Pharisees were painting him as one who was relaxing God's commandments and teaching others to do so. Really, they were the ones doing that. So look what he says in verse 20. I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that would be a jaw dropper. Because you look at them, it's just, you know, like going and saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of all those people, you know, in their ornate church service with all their robes on, 
and all that stuff. Unless you're more righteous than that, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven, right? I mean, if you didn't understand, you'd be like, this is impossible. This would have been a shocking statement. You know, we look at the Pharisees and scribes with contempt today because we know what Jesus said about them. But in this day and age, they were the David Jeremiah's. They were the Alistair Beggs. They were the uh, Greg Laurie's. They were the spiritual giants. Not saying that those guys teach false doctrine. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying their status as religious people, right? And so imagine that, you know. You're not going to get to heaven unless you're more righteous than John MacArthur, you know. Then, uh, you know, you would have been like, what? Verse 20, I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. This would have been a direct hit to them because they believed they were so righteous. These guys were so spiritual looking. They even tithed out of their herb garden, right? You guys remember reading about that? They even took 10% of their herb garden and took it to church and like tithing every single thing. They fasted multiple times a week. They had hand-washing rituals. They wore their ornate robes to distinguish themselves from others. They prayed great wordy prayers on the street corners. In fact, there was a saying going around in this day that said, if only two men made it to heaven, one would be a scribe and the other a Pharisee, right? That's how people looked at these guys. So can you imagine how shocking it is what Jesus is saying? I mean, put yourself in the situation. A carpenter from Galilee, from Nazareth even, this town where nothing good comes out of Nazareth. This guy's gained a little bit of a following, and now he is taking it straight to the top of the religious organization in his day. And he's saying, nobody's getting to heaven unless they're more righteous than you, right? It's like, it's like some pastor that came from a life of drugs and everything else or something, you know, going into like the head of the denomination and saying, nobody's going to heaven unless they're more righteous than you are. I mean, can you appreciate this? Jesus, they thought he was just like born of adultery and everything. They said all kinds of terrible things about him. And here he is, this one guy taking it to the whole establishment. Now, what could he possibly mean? Okay. Because have you ever wondered about this? Has this verse ever been a big source of condemnation in your life? Has anybody ever been condemned by this verse? They said, well, how could I ever be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? Well, First of all, he's not talking about quantitative righteousness. You know what I mean when I say quantitative? Quantitative and qualitative, right? Quantity or quality. I'm not, let me give you an example. What he's not saying is if you want to get to heaven, you need to do religious stuff like the scribes and Pharisees, but you need to be more scribey and more Pharisee than them. They fast two days a week. You need to fast three days a week. They tithe from their herb garden. I want you to tithe from every single thing that you have. They pray three times a day. I want you to pray five times a day. See, quantity, quantitative. Jesus is not saying you need to be like them, only better, only more, right? Like turn it up to 11, bro, on the you know, legalism. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying quantitatively that your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and Pharisees. He's talking about qualitative. God demands an altogether different sort of righteousness to gain entrance to heaven. The right standing that I need to get into heaven is beyond human capability. 
Even if I keep all the Ten Commandments perfectly on the outside, it doesn't matter because there's sin in my heart and I can never do them perfectly enough to enter my way into heaven. God demands perfect righteousness for entrance into heaven, right? Perfect obedience in heart, mind, soul, spirit, actions, words, motives, deeds. God's entrance for heaven, the requirement is absolute perfection. Have you ever thought about that? That's terrible news if that's all you knew about the story. So your righteousness has to be of an altogether different kind than these religious people. Let me pause and say, there's nothing wrong with human righteousness in and of itself. I would rather hang out with atheists that don't lie, cheat, steal, or hurt people than with Christians that lie, cheat, steal, and hurt people. Make no mistake about it. I'd rather hang out with humanly righteous people than not, right? But when you're talking about heaven and getting into heaven, human righteousness doesn't mean anything. You can be the most moral person in Mason City. You can be far better than everybody in this community as far as your righteousness goes, but that's not going to earn your way into heaven. You just can't get there based on human righteousness. Remember, the Bible says that all of our works are as what? Filthy rags before the Lord. Why? Because they're sin-tainted. Even on my best day, the best deed that I do is always coming from a heart that is tainted with sin. So God's standard of righteousness has zero tainting of sin. Of sin. What he requires to get into heaven is absolute perfection. And that's what he's saying here. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, unless it's an altogether different kind of righteousness, you're not getting into heaven. God demands perfect righteousness for entrance to heaven, not some external religious show, but true internal, you know, moral perfection. That's what he demands. Well, you say, that counts me out. I can never get to heaven. Bingo. You've got it figured out now. God's standard is light years higher than what the scribes and the Pharisees taught. Jesus' sermon here should drive you to the Savior, not give you the idea that you can get to heaven without one. This is the key to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, if you think you can make it into the kingdom without me as your Savior, you better be awfully good. In fact, you better be absolutely, 100%, infallible, perfect. That's the only way you're going to get to heaven. If today you've been thinking, you know, I don't know about this Christianity stuff, because I know that if I die, if there is a God, you know, he's going to judge me. Just He's going to see that I was a pretty good person overall. No way. He's going to look through the lens of perfection at you, and he's going to say, are you perfect? And uh, you're going to say, well, I've done a few good things in my life before, and um, that's not going to cut it. The only way anybody's getting into heaven is with absolute perfect righteousness. So, to recap, contrary to what the scribes and Pharisees said, Jesus was not relaxing the scripture. In fact, what he was doing was he was taking it to its proper place. You know, you guys misinterpreted it and said you can keep these commandments. You think you can, how warped do you have to be to think you can keep these commandments perfectly? He says, actually, what God was saying when he gave you the law was in thought, word, deed, and motive, you had to, 
this is the standard, it's absolute moral perfection. The law should be convincing you that you can't do it, not boosting your ego, making you think you can do it. So Jesus actually wasn't relaxing the scripture. He was actually elevating it to where it should be. I hope you're understanding what I'm saying here. This is crucial to your understanding of the gospel. Okay. And God forgive me if I'm not explaining it clearly enough, but you know, Lord help us. He set the record straight and he said that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or you're not going to make it to heaven. Let me uh, close with the Apostle Paul's testimony here. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. I want to show you because Paul was a Pharisee. He was one that believed that he could earn his way into heaven through his religious behavior. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. Though I, I also might have confidence in the flesh. In other words, when he says that, he's saying confidence in his works, in his external works, the things that he did. I might have confidence in my flesh. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Now listen. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now listen, this is key not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now, Paul understood the difference between human righteousness and the kind of righteousness required to get into heaven. There are different kinds of righteousness. Let's go through that. Seven things he lists there that he used to rest on. He used to think, I'm going to heaven because of these things. And he said, first of all, his bloodline. He puts his bloodline forth in there. He says, I'm a Jew. Well, Jews go to heaven in their understanding. So the next thing is he was a pure-blooded uh, Jew. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he couldn't get any better. His bloodline's perfect, you know. He was circumcised the eighth day. That means he wasn't a proselyte. He wasn't a convert to Judaism. In fact, he was, you know, circumcised the eighth day. He was born a Jew, right? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you guys know about the tribe of Benjamin. They were faithful to the Old Testament. They stuck to it when, you know, with Judah when these other tribes uh, you know, didn't. So that's even, he's even saying, I'm from the right tribe. He said he was a Pharisee. How he understood the law, he was extremely zealous and legalistic. He made this personal choice to become a Pharisee. Uh, he's given his resume here, right? He says he was zealous. That was proven even by the fact that he persecuted the early church. And that was highly esteemed as a Jew. It's like, were you so serious about, you know, defending God that you're willing to stamp out anything that's heretical? And so he said he was zealous. And then what he says in there is he was blameless. So what he's saying is he kept God's law and all the traditions of the Pharisees perfectly. That's what he's saying. But he came to realize, as it says in this passage, that all these things were useless. Why would he say such a thing? 
Because any of those things don't make any difference when it comes to getting into heaven. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're born in a Christian country into a Christian home. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter if you've memorized the Bible inside and out. It doesn't matter if you're you know, a really good, nice person. It doesn't matter if you hold the door for old ladies. It doesn't matter what you do. Nothing that you do can earn your way into heaven. Paul figured that out. Self-righteousness became dung to him. It's kind of a funny thing, and it'll probably get a rise out of you. But when he says in verse uh, 8 that he counts all things as rubbish, you guys know what that word is in the Greek? Skubalung? You know what skubalung means? Who knows? Poop? Told you to get a rise out of you. doesn't matter how old you are, how mature you are, how Christian you are. You can always get a rise out of people with poop. <laughs> But Paul says, all this stuff that I used to hang my hat on, all this stuff where I used to puff up my chest and say, I'm a Jew from the right tribe, I keep all the laws, I do everything correctly, he says, you know what, that's all poop, it's all garbage. Why? Because it kept him from knowing Christ. It kept him from being poor in spirit, from mourning over his sin, from becoming, you know, coming to God meek and, and saying, look, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It kept him from all of that. And so he says, all that stuff was useless. He says, you know what, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law. You don't get into heaven by rule keeping and thinking that you, you know, are keeping the commandments. You get into heaven by admitting that you're spiritually bankrupt, you have nothing to offer God, and you say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Paul came to that realization. He counted it up, his past human achievements, all dung. Uh, Jesus was everything. Heaven's not about earning and deserving, but it's about receiving, which you could never earn. You can never earn heaven. If you think you can, you're going to earn hell. And hell is filled with human righteousness. Hell is filled with human righteousness. And you'll end up there if you trust on your own works. You'll end up there. If you think God's going to let you into heaven because you're a pretty good person, you're going to end up in hell. And the Bible's clear about that. God's standard is far higher now, if you'll repent of standing on human righteousness and ask God to forgive you and give you the righteousness that he requires, he will give it to you as a gift. He'll give you the righteous standing that's required as a gift. The Bible says you're saved by grace through faith. Now, if you trust in the righteousness of Christ and you repent of your own, you will be saved. Now, listen, sometimes we come to Christ and we think, this is great. I'm a Christian. I repented of my sin. But do you know that there's more to repent of than just your sin? You need to repent of your righteousness. You understand what I mean by when I say that? Christians, when we come to Christ, it's not just that we're repenting of our sin. We're also repenting of our righteousness, our human righteousness. God, all the times that I thought that I was, you know, that I was going to get into heaven because I'm such a good person, I have to repent of that. I have to turn from that. I have to turn from all of my standing in which I thought God owed me an entrance to heaven because I'm so good, because I'm such a good moral person. I have to repent of my righteousness because my righteousness and my good deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. Not only does a Christian need to repent of their sin and their disobedience, they need to repent of their self-righteousness. And I'll tell you, if you haven't done that today, you know you may not be a Christian. This is, this is fun, fundamental Christianity here. I have to turn from anything that I think makes me deserve 
a way into heaven. It's so funny if you ask you know, a whole group of Christians, you say, how do you know you're going to go to heaven tonight? And they'll say, well, you know, I, I'm a Lutheran. So that's great that you're a Lutheran, but how do you know you're going to go to heaven tonight? Well, I know I am because I was, I was confirmed. I was baptized. Wrong answer. Well, how do you know you're going to go to heaven tonight? Well, I know that if there is a God, he's going to look at my life and he's going to see that I did, you know, I pretty much did the right thing and I had good intentions. Well, so you're saying good intentions is the standard for getting yourself into heaven? Wrong answer. Well, if you were to die tonight, how are you to know you're going to go to heaven? Well, I mean, I prayed the sinner's prayer and I did this. In fact, it's written in my Bible the day that I did this. Wrong answer. There's only one right answer, guys. How do you know you're going to go to heaven tonight if you die? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive me of my sin. And God said if I'll put my faith in him, that I'll be saved by grace through faith, not anything to do with my own works, but everything to do with his work on my behalf. That's how I know I'm going to heaven. I have to repent of my righteousness just as much as I do my sin. Ah, boy. In conclusion, let's just make a few points of application. First of all, I would encourage you to have the same view of scriptures as Jesus Christ does. Number two, understand that you are to keep and to teach the word, not to gain salvation, but because you're God's child and you know your life was bought with the blood of Christ and you want to live in a way that God prescribes for your life because it's a good way to live. Number three, you have to understand that you have no chance of making it into heaven by your own good deeds. You need the perfect righteousness of God given to you. So how do you receive this righteousness? 2 Corinthians 5 uh, verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God the Father made Jesus Christ sin for all of us, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Theologians call this the great exchange. As I place my faith in Christ, as you place your faith in Christ, two things happen. Some of us think only one thing happens. We think, I get forgiven of my sins. But actually, two things happen. Okay? You're forgiven of your sins, but you're also given the righteous standing of Christ. Righteous standing. Kind of like today, you know, like COVID, you know, they're coming out with the COVID card, you know, like pretty soon you're going to have to have like an implant in your hand or something probably to like prove that you've taken the vaccine or whatever. Uh, well, I don't know. Forgive that. Strike that from the record. Maybe not. Um, <laughs> but, you know, some places are requiring this, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's the mark of the beast or anything or the mask of the beast or nothing like that. Um, but you've got this code or this card right, that you have to present some places. Not in Iowa, because we're in a bubble with the conservative governor, and God pray for her, please help her. But in other places, you're having to present credentials. Now, these credentials, they say whether you're righteous or not, according to the standard. The standard is, if you haven't been vaccinated, you sit over there. So show me the proof that you're righteous, and then I'll let you sit over here. Not only when you come to Christ are you forgiven of your sin, you're also given the, the card, if you will, of righteousness. So when you die and it says, you know, God says, 
why should I let them into heaven? Show me your card. You say, well, I have faith in Jesus Christ. So not only am I forgiven of my sin, but I'm also given righteous status. God calls me righteous. You say, Adam, you're not righteous. I know, but God calls me righteous, right? That's what happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Not only are you forgiven of your sins, your sins are taken as far as the east, the west removed from you, you're cleansed in the blood of Christ. You're also given the perfect righteous standing of Jesus Christ. You're saying, so God looks at me today and he sees me as righteous? Yeah. It's called the great exchange. Christ Jesus takes all my sin, shame, and guilt on himself at the cross and exchanges his perfect righteousness for, for my sin. So that's a pretty good deal. It is. So why would you not want to place your faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, who in their right mind would not want to become a Christian? You know what I mean? This is a pretty bung deal for Christ in a way, you know, I mean, from a human perspective, right? Uh, he takes all my sin, shame, and guilt, and I walk away with his righteous standing just because of faith? You know, back in our passage when he says, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. He fulfilled it all perfectly, got 100% on the test, and guess what? By faith, your D paper gets traded for his A paper. That's a good deal. If you haven't come to Christ today, why not? Who in their right mind would not come to Jesus Christ to be forgiven of their sins and to be given a righteous standing that will guarantee them entrance into heaven? doesn't make any sense why you wouldn't do that. I'll tell you what, if Christians are wrong, I don't really have much to lose because becoming a Christian has improved my life a thousandfold. But I'll tell you what, if you're wrong, you have a lot to lose because you'll be in hell. Interesting. Now, if you want to give your life to Christ, it's very simple. There's three points um, that I'll make, and it's very simple. First of all, as you read God's law, you should come to the understanding that you don't live up to it. If you don't, you have some weird understanding of the law. Maybe you're a Pharisee. I don't know. Maybe you're a Pharisee, you know, modern-day Pharisee. You think you keep this stuff or something. Anybody that understands what's being said here realizes God's standard is impossible to meet on our own. So first of all, you admit that. Can you admit that to God today that you can't keep his Ten Commandments perfectly? Can you admit that? I mean, the first step's pretty easy, right? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. I can admit I can't keep these commandments. The wages of sin is death. God's telling you what your destiny is. He's saying in this state, death is your destiny, eternal death, eternal separation from him because heaven's a perfect place and God's a perfect God and you're an imperfect human and the two don't mix, right? And so he says, because I love you, I did something to fix this problem. You've offended an eternal God, so he sent an eternal sacrifice. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. When Christ died on the sin or on the cross, he took the sin upon himself. He fixed your biggest problem. His righteousness is imputed to you. And so that's the second step. First is admit. The second one is to believe what God did for you. Believe, the, believe in the way that God chose to fix the problem for you by sending his son to take the penalty you deserve, and you walk away getting the life that he earned. And then the third part is confess. It's very simple. The Bible says that anybody that's confessed the Lord Jesus, you know, he'll be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what it is. 
admit that you fall short of God's standard, I have no problem with that. I prove that over and over again. Ask my wife. Believe. I'll tell you what, I do believe. I do believe for a number of reasons. I believe because of how different my life has become after believing. I believe because I've seen hundreds of people, lives changed because they believed this simple message. I believe because the word says it. And confess, no problem, Jesus, your Lord. I confess with my mouth and believe my heart. Your Lord, help me, save me. Next week, Jesus will get into going through, uh, he's going to give some examples of the Pharisees' misinterpretations of scriptures. And um, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, you know, and so on. And he goes and he gives the correct interpretation of the law. As we go through it, we go, man, you know, Jesus' standards, God's standards are so much higher than man's. We thank you, Lord, that salvation is given to us as a gift because we understand plainly that there's no way that we could ever earn or deserve it on our own. And so, Father, make these truths more and more real to us that we would come away from this message today appreciating your grace all that much more. We ask in Jesus' name.